Chapter 3 of Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England by Charles H. Firth. Chapter 3 The Long Parliament, 1640 to 1642. The Long Parliament met at Westminster on November 3rd, 1640. Most of its members, even as Cromwell himself, had sat in the Parliament of the preceding May, but they came together now in a different temper and with far greater power in their hands. Charles could not venture to dissolve them so long as the Scottish army was encamped on English soil. No fear of raising the Parliament, wrote a Scot, so long as the lads about Newcastle sit still. There were three things which the long Parliament was resolved to do. The first was to release the sufferers from arbitrary government. The second, to punish the men by whose hands the king had sought to establish his arbitrary power. The third, to amend the constitution so that arbitrary rule should be impossible hereafter. Pym's long experience in parliaments made him the undisputed leader of the popular party, and his maxim was that it was not sufficient to remove grievances, but necessary to pull up the causes of them by the roots. A master of parliamentary tactics in days when party discipline was unknown, Pym retained his ascendancy until the day of his death but he remained to the end a great party leader rather than a great statesman. He was too much of a partisan to understand the feelings of his opponents, too closely attached to precedents and legal formulas, to perceive the new issues which new times brought. When it was necessary to leave the beaten road, he was incapable of finding fresh paths. Pym was the chief orator of his party, as well as its guiding spirit. In long, methodical expositions of the grievances of the nation, he pressed home the indictment against arbitrary government with convincing force. But sometimes he rose to a grave and lofty eloquence, or condensed the feeling of the hour in brief, incisive phrases that passed current like proverbs. Hamden came next to Pym in authority with the house, and had a far greater fame outside it. Ship money had made him famous. The eyes of all men were fixed on him as their patrie pater, and the pilot that must steer their vessel through the tempests and rocks that threatened it. A poor speaker, but clear-sighted, energetic and resolute, a supreme governor over all his passions and affections, he was a man who swayed others in council, and whom they would follow when it came to action. Next to these in importance came St. John, Hamden's counsel in the ship-money case, and the ablest of the opposition lawyers, Hollers, and Strode, men who had suffered for their boldness in the Parliament of 1629, and Rudyard, whose oratory had gained him renown in still earlier Parliaments. Of the younger men, the most prominent were Nathaniel Fines and Sir Henry Vane, notorious for their advanced religious views, and Sir Arthur Hazelrig, and Harry Martin, equally notorious for their democratic opinions. 
the headquarters of the popular party was sir richard manley's house in a little court behind westminster hall where pym lodged there while parliament was sitting pym hamden and a few others kept a common table at their joint expense and during their meetings much business was transacted cromwell as the cousin of hamden and st john was doubtless one of this group though he was known to the party in general only as a rather silent country squire who had been a member of the two last parliaments it is evident that he had some reputation for business capacity during the first session of the long parliament he was specially appointed to eighteen committees not counting those particularly concerned with the affairs of the eastern counties to which the member for cambridge was naturally added cromwell's first intervention in the debates of the house was on november ninth sixteen forty when the grievances of the nation and the wrongs of those who had suffered under star chamber and high commission were being set forth at large he rose to deliver a petition from john lilber a prisoner in the fleet and how he looked and spoke is recorded in sir philip warwick's memoirs the first time i ever took notice of him says warwick was in the beginning of the parliament held in november sixteen forty when i vainly thought myself a courtly young gentleman for we courtiers ballied ourselves much on our good clothes i came into the house one morning well clad and perceived a gentleman speaking whom i knew not very ordinarily apparelled for it was a plain cloth suit which seemed to have been made by an ill country tailor his linen was plain and not very clean and i remember a speck or two of blood upon his little band which was not much larger than his collar his hat was without a hat-band his stature was of a good size his sword stuck close to his side his countenance swollen and reddish his voice sharp and untunable and his eloquence full of fervour for the subject matter would not bear much of reason it being in behalf of a servant of mr prynne's who had dispersed libels against the queen for her dancing and such like innocent and courtly sports and he aggravated the imprisonment of this man by the council table unto that height that one would have believed the very government itself had been in great danger by it i sincerely profess it much lessened my reverence unto that great council for he was very much harked unto when the grievances of the nation had been heard and the petitions of individual sufferers referred to committees the long parliament turned to punish the king's ministers charles himself was never mentioned but with great honour as a king misled by evil counsellors who had prevented him from following the dictates of his native wisdom and goodness in the interests of both king and subjects argued rudyard these evil advisers must be removed and punished as the bible said take away the wicked from the king and his throne shall be established accordingly strafford was arrested and impeached just as he was himself about to accuse the parliamentary leaders of high treason for encouraging and aiding the invasion of the scots november eleventh a month later lord followed strafford to the tower windebank the secretary of state and lord keeper finch likewise accused fled beyond the seas two more bishops and six judges were impeached and imprisoned while all monopolists were expelled from the house of commons it seemed a general doomsday strafford was the first to suffer and his trial in westminster hall riveted all eyes 
It was not only, as the great apostate to the Commonwealth, the oppressor of the English colonists in Ireland, the moving spirit of the unjust war against the Scots, that Strafford was accused. The essence of the charge against him was that he had endeavoured by words, acts, and counsels to subvert the fundamental laws of England and Ireland in order to introduce an arbitrary and tyrannical government. In him seemed incarnate the rule of arbitrary will as opposed to the reign of law which the Parliament strove to restore. Pym's speeches against Strafford are throughout a glorification of the reign of law. Good laws, he said, nay, the best laws, were no advantage when will was set above law. All evils hurtful to the state were comprehended in this one crime. The law is that which puts a difference betwixt good and evil, betwixt just and unjust. If you take away the law, all things will fall into a confusion. Every man will become a law to himself, which, in the depraved condition of human nature, must needs produce great enormities. Lust will become a law, envy will become a law, covetousness and ambition will become laws, and what dictates what decisions such laws will produce may easily be discerned in the government of Ireland. Nor was the substitution of arbitrary power for law hurtful to subjects only. It is dangerous to the king's person and dangerous to his crown. If the histories of those eastern countries be pursued, where princes ordered their affairs according to the mischievous principles of the Earl of Strafford, loose and absolved from all rules of government, they will be found to be frequenting combustions, full of massacres and of the tragical ends of princes. Strafford struggled to show that the offences proved against him did not legally amount to high treason. Parliament, through the attainder bill, answered that it was necessary for the safety of the state to make them treasonable. To alter the settled frame and constitution of government, said Pym, is treason in any state. The laws whereby all other parts of a kingdom are preserved would be very vain and defective if they had not a power to secure and preserve themselves. Charles was anxious to save Strafford's life, but his blundering interventions during the course of the trial ended in failure. When it was discovered, that the king's agents were plotting to get possession of the tower and to bring the English army up from Yorkshire to overawe the Parliament, the Earl's fate was sealed. Pressed by both houses to yield, and threatened by the London mob if he refused, Charles assented to the Bill of Attainder, and on May 12, 1641, Strafford was beheaded. Side by side, with the prosecution of the king's evil advisers, went on the work of providing against arbitrary government in the future. The extraordinary courts, which had been the instruments of oppression, were swept away. Down went the Star Chamber and the High Commission Court, the Council of the North and the Council of Wales and the Marches. The Tonnage and Poundage Act declared that henceforth it was illegal to levy customs duties without a parliamentary grant. The extension of the forests was prohibited. The extraction of knighthood fines forbidden and ship money declared unlawful. Henceforward, to govern without a parliament was to be as impossible as to tax without a parliament. On February 15, 1641, Charles assented to the Triennial Act, which bound him to call a parliament every third year and provided machinery for its convocation 
if he neglected to summon it at the appointed time. On May 11th, he assented to a second act, which prohibited him from dissolving the present Parliament, or even proroguing it, save by its own consent. Cromwell had taken no part in the prosecution of Strafford, for he was neither an orator nor a lawyer, but his name is closely associated with one of these constitutional changes. The origin of the Triennial Act was a bill introduced by Strode for reviving the old law of Edward III, by which a Parliament must be summoned every year. On December 30th, Cromwell moved its second reading, and he was one of the committee from whose deliberations it finally issued as a bill for summoning a Parliament every three years. In ecclesiastical affairs, he was more prominent by far. On constitutional questions, the popular party had been almost unanimous, but on religious questions, its unanimity ended. The general aim of its leaders was to subject the church to the control of the state, as represented by Parliament, instead of leaving it to the authority of the king as its supreme governor. But while some desired to abolish the prayer book, and to make the doctrine of the church more frankly Calvinistic, others wished merely the abolition of a few offensive formulas or ceremonies. On church government there was the same diversity of opinion. A few wished to maintain bishops as they were, a few to abolish them altogether. The majority desired to retain episcopacy, but to limit the power of the bishops. Hence the popularity of Usher's plan for a limited episcopacy, in which every bishop was to be assisted and controlled by a council of diocesan clergy. As yet there was no party in Parliament which proposed to introduce Presbyterianism or independency but those who wished for the complete extirpation of episcopacy were very numerous. In the Commons, Fines and Sir Henry Vane were for its abolition root and branch, and Hamden afterwards joined them. Amongst these root and branch men was Cromwell, and he was more closely connected with the attack on the church than with any other part of the proceedings of the Long Parliament. The only one of his letters which belongs to this period shows his interest in religious questions. It is addressed to a bookseller, and asks for a copy of the printed Reasons of the Scots to Enforce Their Desire of Uniformity in Religion. I would peruse it, he writes, against we fall upon the debate which will be speedily. The only recorded speech of Cromwell in these ecclesiastical discussions was delivered on February the ninth, 1641, about the question whether a petition for the total abolition of episcopacy, signed by 15,000 citizens of London, should be referred to a committee. A member urged its rejection, arguing that the bishops were one of the estates of the realm and a part of the constitution. Equality, or as he termed it, parity, in the church would lead to equality in the state. Cromwell stood up and very bluntly denied his inferences and suppositions, on which divers interrupted him and called him to the bar. Pym and Hollers defended him, and he was allowed to continue. Mr. Cromwell went on and said, He did not understand why that gentleman that last spake should make an inference of parity from the church to the state, nor that there was any necessity of the great revenues of bishops. 
he was more convinced touching the irregularity of bishops than even before because like the roman hierarchy they would not endure to have their condition come to a trial in may cromwell took another opportunity of attacking the bishops the commons had passed a bill excluding clergymen in general from holding secular office either as judges councillors or members of the house of lords and the upper house showed a resolution not to pass it on this the root and branch men replied with a bill for the abolition of bishops altogether which sir edward deering a noted speaker was persuaded to introduce afterwards deering repented and explained the bill he said was pressed into my hands by sir arthur haselrig being then brought to him by sir henry vane and mr oliver cromwell the root and branch bill never got further than committee but its introduction further accentuated the division in the popular party a section headed by hyde and lord falkland severed themselves definitely from their former friends naturally conservative in temper they were satisfied with the reform already achieved and were more willing to trust the king with the constitution than parliament with the church before the end of the session hyde was in communication with the king and a party of constitutional royalists based on the defence of the church was in process of formation charles was equally determined to maintain the church and full of schemes for regaining his lost power the prospect of obtaining support in the house of commons itself increased his confidence of ultimate success and in august he set out for scotland hoping to win the scottish nobility to his side and to use one kingdom against the other in october sixteen forty one when the second session of the long parliament began the position of affairs was greatly altered the popular party was weakened by its differences on the religious question and the division was rapidly spreading to the nation at the same time the parliamentary leaders had lost through the withdrawal of the scottish army the military force which had protected them from an attempted coup d'etat that the fear of such a stroke on the king's part was by no means groundless the news from scotland proved it was rumoured that with the king's sanction a party of royalist soldiers had plotted to seize hamilton and argyle whose hasty flight from edinburgh had alone saved their lives on the top of this came the news of a rebellion in ireland of an attempt to surprise dublin castle and of a massacre of the english colonists in ulster the rebellion spread daily and as tattered fugitives struggled into dublin each with his story of murder and pillage the excitement in england rose to fever heat it came to be an article of faith that fifty thousand englishmen had been barbarously murdered and some said one hundred and fifty thousand to modern historians the irish rebellion seems only the natural result of the english system of governing ireland but to contemporary englishmen it came like a bolt from the blue the native irish were embittered and impoverished by the confiscations of the last sixty years and filled with fury and fear by strafford's intended plantation of connaught now that the puritans were in power the complete suppression of the catholic religion only threatened before seemed imminent and inevitable the impeachment of strafford and his most trusted councillors had crippled the strong government which strafford had built up and the disbanding of his army had filled the country with men trained to arms 
The opportunity for a successful revolt had come at last, and it was no wonder that the Irish seized it. At its beginning, the rebellion of October 1641 was a rising of the native Irish with the object of recovering the lands from which they had been expelled. It broke out first in the six counties of Ulster, planted in the reign of James I, and next in Wicklow, the most recent of the later plantations. But bloody and barbarous as the rebellion was, no general massacre was either planned or carried out. The first object of the rebels was simply to drive the colonists from their houses and lands, and in the process some were murdered and all plundered. The number of persons killed in cold blood during the first month or two of the rebellion probably amounted to about 4,000, and perhaps twice as many perished from hardships and destitution. To English Puritans, the only possible explanation of the rebellion was that it was the natural result of popery. On December the 4th, 1641, the Long Parliament passed a resolution that they would never consent to any toleration of the Popish religion in Ireland or in any other of His Majesty's dominions. Equally fatal was the resolve that the funds for the reconquest of Ireland should be raised by fresh confiscations of Irish land and the assignment of two and a half million acres for the repayment of those who advanced the money. One vote turned a local insurrection into a general rebellion. The other made the rebellion an internecine war. Both parties in Parliament approved of these votes. A public subscription was opened to which members of Parliament and merchants of London contributed freely. Master Oliver Cromwell, who knew nothing of Irish history, thought the plan wise and just and put his name down for £500, which was about one year's income. He shared the general ignorance of his contemporaries about the causes of the rebellion and believed the prevalent exaggerations about the massacre. Ireland, he told the Irish clergy eight years later, was once united to England. Englishmen had good inheritances, which many of them had purchased with their money, they and their ancestors from you and your ancestors. They had good leases from Irishmen for long times to come, great stocks thereupon, houses and plantations erected at their own cost and charge. They lived peaceably and honestly among you. You had generally equal benefit of the protection of England with them, and equal justice from the laws, saving what was necessary for the state, out of reasons of state, to put upon some people apt to rebel upon the instigation of such as you. You broke this union. You, unprovoked, put the English to the most unheard of and barbarous massacre, without respect to sex or age, that ever the sun beheld, and at a time when Ireland was in perfect peace. To reconquer Ireland, an army had to be raised at once and it was impossible for the parliamentary leaders to trust the king with its control. Less than six months before, Charles had plotted to bring up an army to overawe their debates. In his recent journey to Scotland, he had again been tampering with the officers of the same army, and its disbandment had only just been effected. If they gave him a new army, who could doubt that before six months were over he would be turning it against the Parliament? Pym had no doubts and on November the 6th he brought forward an address saying that unless the king would employ such ministers as Parliament approved, they would take such a course for the securing of Ireland 
as might likewise secure themselves. And while Pym proposed to seize upon the executive power, as far as Ireland was concerned, Cromwell proposed to lay hands on it in England also. On November the 6th, he carried a motion that the two houses should vote to the Earl of Essex power to command all the train bands south of the Trent, and that those powers should continue till this Parliament should take further order. A month later, Haselrig brought in a militia bill which gave a general appointed by the Parliament the supreme command of all the train bands in England. The question whether the King or the Parliament should command the armed forces of the nation was thus definitely raised. In the same November, the Long Parliament appealed to the nation for support. The Grand Remonstrance set forth all the ills the nation had suffered in the fifteen years of the King's reign, and all the Parliament had done in the past twelve months to remove them. It pointed out the obstacles which hindered them in their task, and announced what they hoped to do in the future. The root of every evil was a malignant design to subvert the fundamental laws and principles upon which the religion and justice of the kingdom were based. Let the malignant party be removed, and the reformation of church and state could be completed. The remonstrance bade the nation judge whether its representatives had been worthy of its confidence, and asked it to continue that confidence. It brought war nearer, not because it was an indirect indictment of the king, but because the ecclesiastical policy set forth in its last clauses divided the nation into two camps. In them the House declared its intention of taking in hand the work of church reform, and demanded the calling of a general synod of divines to aid it in the task. Over these clauses of the remonstrance, the debate was long and bitter, November the 22nd. When it passed by but eleven votes, and the majority opposed its printing, it seemed as if the civil war would begin at once, and on the floor of the house. Members protested, and shouted, and waved their hats, and some took their sheathed swords in their hands, as if they waited for the word to draw them. I thought, said an eyewitness, we had all sat in the valley of the shadow of death, for we, like Joab's and Abner's young men, had catched at each other's locks, and sheathed our swords in each other's bowels. When the tumult was allayed, and the members went home, Cromwell's whispered words to Falkland showed how much that night's decision meant. If the remonstrance had been rejected, he said, I would have sold all I had the next morning, and never seen England more, and I know there are many other honest men of the same resolution. Three days after the passing of the remonstrance, Charles returned to Whitehall. He came back, resolved to make no further concessions, and to rid himself of the parliamentary leaders under the form of law. Their relations with the Scots during the late war, their attacks on his royal power, and the changes they sought to make in the Constitution were sufficient in his opinion to prove them guilty of high treason. His first step was to remove the guards round the house, his next to ingratiate himself with the city, his third to place a trusty ruffian in command of the tower. When the commons petitioned for the restoration of their guard, Charles told them that on the word of a king their security from violence should be as much his care as the preservation of his own children. On the day the house received this answer, 
Charles sent the Attorney General to impeach five members and a sergeant-at-arms to arrest them. Footnote. The five members were Pym, Hamden, Hollers, Hazelrig, and Strode. End note. The Commons refused to give them up. The next day he came to arrest them in person, with four hundred armed men at his back, but found the birds flown, and faith in the royal word fled too. January the 4th. 1642. The House of Commons adjourned to the city, which refused, as the House itself had done, to surrender the accused members. Petitioners poured in from the country in thousands to support their representatives, and it was evident that the feeling of the nation was overwhelmingly on the side of the Parliament. The King's coup d'etat had completely failed. On the 11th of January, the House of Commons returned to Westminster, while the king left London to avoid witnessing their triumph. Charles had not intended to act treacherously and believed that his actions were perfectly legal, but it was natural that the parliamentary leaders, refusing to trust him, should press with renewed vigour for the control of the armed force. Cromwell felt this as strongly as his leaders, and three days after the return to Westminster he moved for a committee to put the kingdom in a posture of defence. January 14th. The motion was a little premature. It was necessary, Pym felt, that the two houses should act together, and the lords were slow to move. It was not till Pym told them that unless they would join the commons in saving the kingdom, the commons would save the kingdom without them, that the upper house gave way. In February they passed the bill for the exclusion of the bishops, and joined in the demand for the control of the militia. In March, they united with the Commons in a vote to put the kingdom in a posture of defence by authority of both houses. For the present, however, both King and Parliament were unwilling to appeal to arms. The King strove to gain time in order to gain strength. The Parliament still hoped that the King would grant the securities they sought. So for six months they argued and negotiated, each appealing to the nation by declarations and counter-declarations. So for six months they argued and negotiated, each appealing to the nation by declarations and counter-declarations, and preluding by these paper skirmishes the opening of real hostilities. Charles had two policies which he followed alternately, each of which demanded time for its success. The one was the policy of the Queen and the courtiers, the other was the policy of Hyde and the constitutional royalists. A Queen's policy was active preparation for the inevitable war, regardless of any constitutional doctrines that stood in the way. Help was to be sought from France, or Denmark, or the Prince of Orange, and a port was to be secured in which foreign troops could be landed. Hyde's policy was that the King should remain passive, that he should shelter himself wholly under the law, granting anything which the law obliged him to grant, and denying anything which the law enabled him to deny, and his position made it inexpedient to concede. In the end, said Hyde, the king and the law together would be strong enough for any encounter that might happen. Neither the king's character nor his position made it possible for him to adopt an entirely consistent policy. Some concessions he was obliged to make, either to conciliate public opinion by a show of yielding, or to gain time for his preparations for war. He withdrew the impeachment of the five members. 
he removed the governor of the tower, he temporized about the militia bill, he even consented to the exclusion of the bishops from the House of Lords. Sorely against his own conscience was the latter concession granted, but the Queen insisted upon it, and to secure her safe passage to the continent, Charles yielded. She bore with her to Holland the crown jewels to be pawned to provide arms and ammunition, and when she had sailed, Charles took his way to Yorkshire to gather his friends around him, and to secure the indispensable seaport. As he journeyed north, a deputation met him at Newmarket, and renewed the petition for the militia. But the necessity for concessions was passed, and he refused even a temporary grant. By God, he cried, not for an hour. You have asked that of me in this, was never asked of a king, and with which I will not trust my wife and children. When the king reached York, he set in operation an attempt to get possession of Hull. It was not only the most convenient port for the landing of succour from Holland and Denmark, it was also the great arsenal where the arms and munitions collected for the Scottish war had been stored. On April 23rd, Charles appeared before Hull with 300 horsemen and demanded admission. But Sir John Hotham, the governor, drew up the drawbridge and, taking a stand on the wall, refused to admit the king. After proclaiming him a traitor, Charles rode away. While the policy which the Queen had urged met with failure, the policy of which Hyde was the advocate gained for Charles adherence every day. Opinion veered to the King's side. The change was mainly due to the ecclesiastical policy of the Parliament, for those who loved the Church feared to see its liturgy and its government delivered up to the rough hands of a Puritan Parliament and a synod of Puritan divines. But Hyde's skilful advocacy did much to further the reaction. The declarations he wrote for the king, with their fluid, florid rhetoric and their touches of humour and sarcasm, were far more effective than the ponderous legal arguments published by the Parliament. More was due to the art with which he represented the king as the guardian of the constitution and the Parliament as its assailant. Pym's panegyric of the law was turned against Pym himself. The king was made the champion of the known laws of the land against revolutionists who wished to make the long-established rights of king and subject dependent upon a vote of the House of Commons. He was made the defender of the ancient, equal, happy, well-poised, and never-enough-commended constitution against those who sought to introduce a new utopia of religion and government. That the Parliament was claiming new powers, and the king standing on old rights, it was impossible to deny, and it was difficult for the Parliament to prove the necessity which justified its demands. They could intimate the fears and jealousies which made them distrust the king, but the reality of their grounds for distrusting him is proved by evidence which they could only conjecture, and which later historians were to bring to light. A mere argumentative victory could do nothing to solve the question the English nation had to decide. It was no longer a dispute whether the law gave certain powers to king or parliament, but whether king or parliament was to be sovereign. In the nineteen propositions which formed the parliament's ultimatum, they demanded all the branches of sovereignty for themselves, the control of foreign policy, of ecclesiastical policy, of the army and the navy, the appointment of ministers, councillors and judges, 
the right to punish and the right to pardon were all included government in short was to be carried on by persons chosen by the parliament instead of persons chosen by the king the king might reign but henceforth he should not govern in that sense charles understood the nineteen propositions these being passed he answered we may be waited upon bareheaded we may have our hand kissed the style of majesty continued to us and the king's authority declared by both houses of parliament may still be the style of your commands we may have swords and maces carried before us and please ourselves with the sight of a crown and sceptre but as to true and real power we should remain but the outside but the picture but the sign of a king on the other side their demand as it presented itself to the minds of the parliamentarians was rather defensive than aggressive in its intention without this transference of sovereignty they held it impossible to transmit to their descendants the self-government they had received from their ancestors the question in dispute between us and the king's party says ludlow was as i apprehended whether the king should govern as a god by his will and the nation be governed by force like beasts or whether the people should be governed by laws made by themselves and live under a government derived from their own consent only the sword could decide on july fourth parliament appointed a committee of safety on july sixth they resolved to raise ten thousand men on july ninth they appointed the earl of essex their general the king set up his standard at Nottingham on August 22nd. End of chapter 3